Welcome to Breast Cancer Update. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. One of the goals of this series is to discuss the psychosocial implications of therapeutic decisions, and over the years, we've interviewed many patients with breast cancer to provide insight into the experience. I met with Ms. Diane Chapman, an oncology nurse who coordinates the Multidisciplinary Breast Center at the Rush University Medical Center in Chicago. Ms. Chapman, who is 62 years old, understands better than most oncology healthcare professionals the challenges of dealing with breast cancer because she herself has been treated for two separate primary tumors in the past, one at age 36 and the other at age 40, and later on she was treated for ovarian cancer and received cytotoxic chemotherapy as part of her management. Ms. Chapman met with me to discuss how these experiences have altered her approach to taking care of patients, and she began by describing her choice of local treatment for the first breast cancer. I had a lumpectomy followed by five weeks of radiation. I talked to my husband about it, and his take on it was just do whatever you think is best. But I am very fond of my body, so I thought I don't want to lose a breast unless I really need to. Even though all the literature in the past spoke about mastectomy, it still I thought, well, lumpectomy sounded like a logical answer. And I had negative nodes. They did a full axillary dissection. I had negative nodes, and I was lucky enough to be among that large percentage that didn't need chemotherapy. What was your state of mind at that point when you found out you had breast cancer, your mood, your concerns? Well, it's complicated because what happened when I developed breast cancer is when my mother had been diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer. So essentially, I put me on hold and took care of her. And also, I wasn't working at the time. I was fortunate enough not to have to work. So I was able to take care of her for the most part. But I saw it as, okay, this is my new job. This is what I did. So I was frightened, yes, but I really never thought in my head that this wouldn't work. What was the next step? Four years later, I had a second primary in the other breast. How was that discovered? Mammographically. So it was a very small medullary tumor. And at that point in time, they still did the full. There was no sentinel nose, so we did another axillary dissection. And my take on this was just more of the same. Since I had done so well, I didn't consider this to be a bad omen because the doctor I was seeing at that point in time, and as I said before, I wasn't a nurse, so I was pretty much of a neophyte still. He said, this is just a new breast cancer. It has nothing to do with the one you already have. So I just looked at it as another. And at that point in time, I was in nursing school. What happened in terms of your career? You went to nursing school, then what happened? I really found that I did like oncology, having been on the hematology bone marrow transplant for, especially with the bone marrow transplant patients, because a lot of them were breast cancer patients. So I did find out that I was very effective in dealing with them. I didn't necessarily have to declare myself, but I just understood what they were going through. And can you talk more about that? What do they go through? physiological issues, and then the people who are in the bone marrow transplant are struggling with metastatic disease, recurrences, and many of them had young families, and I just could relate to them, I thought, more empathically, because they're before the grace of God, go I, you know. So that being said, I got the job in the breast center, 
thinking that, oh boy, I don't know if I can do this or not. But I found that it was very helpful because I had been on all sides of the triad. I had been a patient. I had been a relative of a patient. And now I'm a caregiver. So I found it very helpful. When you see women who are initially diagnosed Mm -hmm. with breast cancer, what are some of the issues that they're facing in terms of, let's say, psychosocial issues? And what are your insights about it based on your experience? It really depends upon their time of life. Unfortunately, many of our patients are quite young. And because of the standard these days, even though they may be in their 30s, they might have one- and two-year-olds. So their children are quite young. And so many people will verbalize that I just want to see them graduate from grammar school. And I say, well, you know, you'll probably see your grandchildren. And they're just awestruck by that because they just see it as a terminal disease that has affected them and will affect their lives negatively. And actually, when I look back on it, Breast cancer was the best thing that ever happened to me. Can you explain more? I was able to set my priorities, and I think you examine your life a little bit better. You pay attention to the important things and not the superfluous things. I'm very happy with my life right now, and I don't think I would be here if I hadn't had breast cancer. I was not unhappy, but I just wasn't as satisfied as I am now. What advice do you give in terms of talking to children regardless of what age? Well, first of all, I advise them to tell them as much as they can handle because children are very intuitive. And if you pretend like nothing is going on, they, first of all, know that something is going on. And the other thing is, depending upon what age group they're in, you cannot control what other people say to them. And so they may think it's far worse than it actually is and worry by themselves and be very anxious by themselves but won't say anything to the parents because they know that they're worried. So it can be a really horrendous situation for a child. And I think being upfront with them, you don't have to tell them all the gory details, but is really the best way to handle it. And you can start when they're three years old, really. You know, mommy's having surgery. There are books. There are wonderful books, like My Mommy Has Cancer and things like that. And I had a patient who, I think her children were seven and four when she was diagnosed, and she was a young woman, obviously. And she said the way she explained it when she was losing her hair is that's really telling us that the chemotherapy is working. And the kids could accept that. So, you know, you get a lot of insights from patients themselves, too. What do you say to patients in terms of coping with fear? Well, I think having seen a psychotherapist is very helpful because they are in a crisis mode. And whenever you're in a crisis mode, you need help from other people. I think seeing a psychotherapist can really help, number one, talk about it so that alleviates your fears because perhaps like when I was diagnosed I didn't really share my fears that much and because you don't want to upset other people, and I'm sure I'm not alone. I'm sure many women feel that way. But if you have a psychotherapist to talk to or a counselor to talk to, I think that in itself, just verbalizing your fears makes them less fearful. 
What can clinicians themselves, nurses, physicians do to help people with fear? Well, I think one basic question is when you see them just to say, how are you doing? You know, because you tick off the little side effect, but many times their emotional health is not really addressed. And I found that when I say to people, especially people that are newly diagnosed on the phone, they'll just start crying because nobody's ever really asked them, you know, how are you doing? Because they'll say, okay, I was diagnosed and now this is what I've done. You know, like they have their jobs to do. And that occupies their emotional time. But when you step back, then they start verbalizing that they are frightened. And what do you say to comfort them? First of all, I'll say that you're in the worst phase right now because you don't know what's going on. You've just been diagnosed with cancer. Many people don't even know what kind of cancer they have when I talk to them. So this is the worst phase. I said once we know more and you have more information about your treatment and there's a plan, then you will feel so much better. The fear won't be totally gone away, but once you start acting on the plan, then you do feel so much better. What do you see happening within marriages and relationships? I think that the good ones get better, and the ones that are not so good either stay that way or get worse. And a lot of it has to do with how much communication there is between the spouses, and I think basically the communication issue, and a spouse being able to hear that their wife is frightened. Because often the women are taking care of everything and in charge. And to hear somebody who's frightened that not only are they frightened, but they're frightened they're going to die is pretty overwhelming for a lot of spouses. Where does spirituality and religion fit in? I think it's a real personal thing. I think for many people it's a big comfort. They're being able to pray and feel closer to God. But I don't think it's necessary. And you can be spiritual and not have a belief as well. You can just... So I think it's how comforted you are by those feelings and those thoughts is really um, the benefit. Do you think it's appropriate for oncology professionals to ask patients about that, spirituality and religion? Sure. Obviously, it's inappropriate to proselytize, but certainly I think that gives you a sense of where that person is, too, and what they think is important and what they believe. I I guess it's maybe also trying to program for what support systems they might have. Right, right. I mean, you ask people, you know, Jehovah Witness, you know what they are going to do and what they're not going to do, and so that's totally appropriate. So I think it's very appropriate to ask oncology patients and how they cope. Everyone has different styles of coping, too. What are some of the styles that you've observed, and which ones seem to work better? Well, I don't know if you can say that one works better than the other, but I think that people who are open about what's going on with them seem to cope better, and people who are open with what's going on with them are also open to taking help from other people. People who isolate themselves because they don't want people to know or they don't want people to know their business really do themselves a disservice because then that window or that opportunity for other people to offer any help is closed. Where does anger fit in? How does that play out in terms of what you've observed? Now, I don't see anger in the beginning. I see anger later with recurrent cancer. I think there are some people who probably are angry, but 
they're just shocked because they're under the assumption that, okay, I've done everything I was supposed to do. Why did this happen to me? It's more shock and disbelief than anger. And when you talk to them and counsel them that 75 to 80% of the people who are diagnosed are just like you. We don't know why. I mean, people do the right things, and unfortunately, they still get cancer. Any insights you have in terms of oncology nurses and what they do that's helpful and what they do that could be better? Wow, that's a big question. One of the things that I think has been diminished is the oncology nurse's ability to listen. They've become more busy. I look in our treatment room where when I first came on board, we had essentially primary nursing. And now, because we have so many docs and not as many nurses as we should have, primary nursing is not really followed that closely. And while somebody is doing their teaching and probably doing it well, they're still thinking, okay, now I'm listening for that other pump to go off. And I think that they're inability to listen based on the stresses of their job is the major thing that can impact on their communication with patients. Any observations in terms of chemotherapy, in terms of how they go through that, and what are some of the obstacles that are faced there? Well, as far as chemotherapy, the physiologic obstacles of losing their hair is very important to people, extremely important. I never had chemotherapy till I had ovarian cancer, so I really could never speak to that. But what I tell them is what I did to help myself along. I knew it was going to come out, but seeing it on the pillow and seeing it other places was just so horrifying to me that I say, you may want to just get a really short haircut, and then what's going to happen is one day in the shower you can just rub your scalp and it'll all be gone. I said, I did that myself, and I found that much easier to live with than those strands of hair. Just, it's horrible. Do you follow women who are receiving hormonal therapy, tamoxifen, aromatase mm-hmm. inhibitors? Mm-hmm. What are some of the issues that come up there? For the younger women, they don't complain about that many side effects. The older women are sure that they gain weight on the tamoxifen. That's the main complaint that they, oh, this is making me gain weight. However, you know, when they go off the tamoxifen after five years, they don't lose the weight. So, And I tell them, yeah, well, a lot of people think that, but when you go off of it, you won't lose, you know, most people don't. And then it could be just your stage in life, too. And so people seem to be, you know, they take tamoxifen pretty easily, or the aromatase inhibitors. The main drawback with aromatase inhibitors are the joint pain that's associated with it, but it's not enough for most people to stop taking it. What's the typical syndrome that you observe? It seems like it's pain in their legs. One woman just said, I can't do this anymore. She just stopped. But most people will just kind of go with it in non-steroidals. I'm curious what your thoughts are about the Oncotype DX assay that's recently kind of come into clinical practice and how you've seen that play out. I think it's great because you were giving chemotherapy to people who didn't really need it. Can you kind of take a step back and talk a little bit about what the test is and how it's utilized? The Oncotype DX is used for women who are ER positive, node negative, have early stage breast cancer. And the premise behind it is that some women can be treated very well with just tamoxifen, 
some women absolutely need chemotherapy and tamoxifen, and then, of course, there's that gray area. We've had surprises, so 0.5 millimeter tumor, low S phase, you know, looked like things were okay and would not give that woman chemo, but when you do Oncotype DX, she comes up in the worrisome category, and those are advances that really are marvelous. They're just marvelous, I think, because you also, on the opposite side, are not exposing them to the side effects of chemotherapy if they don't need it. And I guess one of the things that's always been vexing about that in these women with hormone-positive or ER-positive node-negative tumors is the thought that maybe chemotherapy will have a little bit of benefit, Mm -hmm. and that's so tough for a patient to turn down. Mm -hmm. Well, there are some patients who are so risk-averse, it won't matter. They can be in the 11% category, and they still want chemotherapy because you can talk all you want, but they have a preconceived notion of their risks that they find acceptable. Do you see women feeling more reassured when they have a low recurrence score yes. about letting go of the chemotherapy? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In general, the women who come into the low-risk category are exquisitely relieved for the most part. I'm not talking about the subset of the people who are risk-averse. And also, you can quantify it instead of saying, well, statistics show. You have something that you can show them that makes sense to them, and it's like a diagram, more or less. And so I think that they believe it rather than if we're just having this conversation. If they can see something that shows them, they believe it.